Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-GM of sorts. McGill, and I am a GM. Of sorts. Uh, I am am explicitly a GM this time. I never know what what sort of GM you're going to be, but on this, the episode... 153 apparently mcgill is just a good old-fashioned gm it jumps around because mcgill is exploring bold new frontiers of role-playing they're probably they're only just new to us but um bold new i mean some of them are very niche i I think a, a few of these are new to just about everybody point being mcgill's been uh doing ventures off into all sorts of new frontiers and role-playing and trying out new games. While I just keep telling stories, I just keep comparing the same campaigns of uh, Coyote's Aegis, the third in my ongoing series of 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons campaigns. And we're at a turning point of sorts on this, the... 153rd episode recorded on the 7th of June 2023 because we just finally finished my account of Operation Winter, which uh, focused on the beloved module Writhing in the Dark. And now we're moving on to the next the next module uh, with Operation Goldeneye. Of sorts. Of sorts, which of what's sorts. of sorts this time? I don't know. You've just been saying of sorts a lot. I was just saying it about all the different sorts of DN- uh, GMs you could be. Tom, you know what I'm bringing to the RPG Danger Room this time? What? I'm bringing a game called Don't Rest Your Head. You ever heard of this one? It sounds familiar, but probably because that's just a phrase. <laughs> uh it's a game by fred hicks and uh, i mean i'll get into it when we get to the danger room but uh i think you'll find that the setting while cool uh feels very familiar but the gameplay itself is quite unique right, once again i've been so busy these days that i i still haven't had time to dive into nobilis so i'm doing something this else this guy knows how bad i'm i'm waiting to hear nobilis i've been, I've been... Oh, it's it's just it's it's it, you know <clears throat> the the word i always use when it comes to these is oblique like it's a very jenna moran does not write straightforward rpgs and i just have not had the time like I, I feel like I need a glossary when I read the rule book. Anyway, I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm interested to hear once you crack it. <laughs> I do want to hear. And I'm excited to see you construct an entire campaign out of it immediately. Yeah, man. If, if that happens, we'll see. It's diceless, right? Yeah, it is. Well, I've actually, uh, on the subject of me going off and making RPGs, I actually have. A uh, topic that you felt I should bring up on the podcast, I believe. Yeah. Uh, I so my D and D game, Coyotes Aegis, in fact, is presently on hiatus. Uh, my brothers are real busy, and uh, 
It's too bad. He's real busy, except he's able to play, like, in teeth because that's, like, not super regular. But now, uh, haven't been able to get a game of teeth going for a while now. I mean, we have one, but it's going to be a while before we have our next one. Um, but in the meantime, while Coyote's Aegis is on hiatus, I have begun a new little game project with some of my friends from my regular gaming group. Not not the gaming group that I usually run, but the one that I have played in in the past, which includes my friend Spencer, who was in Coyote's Aegis, uh, my friend Rafi and his brother, and... Uh, yeah, and, our, our, and another friend of ours. And um, we are... So I'm running a game that is... I, I've done a hack of, of Forged in the Dark, of the Blades in the Dark system. Um, taken some things out here, thrown some things in here and there. Uh, it probably, you know, for, for good reason, I'd say the Forts in the Dark game this probably looks the most like is Teeth, just because that was sort of my starting point to go from. But um, I've hacked it into a modern paramilitary RPG, and uh, I've set it in a fictional conflict in Iceland, and so I'm calling it, uh, in the spirit of Forged in the Dark, I'm calling it Boots on the Ground Iceland. That's the name of the that's the name of the campaign. Boots on the ground, Iceland, and uh, yeah. What do you like? I don't know. You you felt that I should talk about it on the uh, episode, right? It feels to me like the sort of end result of a lot of stuff that we've talked about on the podcast, right? Like it feels it's almost the setting almost feels sort of inspired, if not by. G.I. Joe, uh, then by the conversations we, you know, adjacent to it, like when you talk about Jagged Alliance. So like the setting feels like that. You sort of basing it off of Teeth also goes along with it because, you know, Teeth is something that we've been playing lately. So I just thought it was cool that uh, after all that, now you've you've created your own variant of it and you successfully ran it. And it sounded like a from what you told me it went well right yeah um and and yeah there is a fair amount of like this is sort of what i ended up running instead of like a dedicated gi joe game i guess you could say because while i did get the gi joe rules and everything they didn't they didn't impress me as much as i guess i have been impressed by the forge in the dark system as you see it in teeth and everything um mm-hmm. cyberpunk also has a a fair like amount of responsibility here as well it's like that was my real first dipping into uh forged in the dark systems um so yeah uh i had actually i'd made a whole sort of i'd made a whole set of playbooks for different classes um actually pull those up uh because we got uh, so we got playbooks for con- commando, engineer, heavy infantry, officer, or ranger. And uh, one of the things that I changed about it, so like there's small changes, like I changed coin to funds and whatnot. 
Um, I didn't change a lot of the uh, actions from Teeth. The only one I changed was the Evoke one that's for magic. Changed that to Interface to be more about hacking, that sort of thing. Um, they've all got contacts that are more appropriate to a paramilitary setting, like the Commando has Nate Ryan, Muscle-Bound Gang Enforcer, ex-military. Or you've got uh, the Heavy has... Uh, Let's see, Randy Everett, jumpy artillery spotter, good luck charm for any squad. Or off officer, you could uh, have a contact of uh, Dog Orlando, an international arms dealer to whom you owe a debt. <laughs> so you get the vibe of that. Lando, you say. Uh, well, Orlando, not, <laughs> not, not just Lando, <laughs> but anyway. Oh. Oh, Orlando. I thought you meant like or space Lando. No, it's it's dog in quotes <laughs> like a nickname Orlando. Uh His name's Dog Orlando. I thought I yeah, exactly. Exactly. I thought it was an option, uh, a choice. You could either have dog or you could have Lando. Dog Orlando. Um the background options are largely inspired by the origins available in uh, G.I. Joe. So you've got Army, Navy, Air Force, Covert Ops, Intelligence, or Civilian. And then for Vice, um, those were largely taken from the, or inspired by the influences from G.I. Joe, um, where, you know, in Blades in the Dark, you know, you typically, your, your vices tend to be like a stupor, weird luxury that sort of thing um i wanted to have it be well i'll just read you the examples from the system i got i got uh the vices i made were duty reputation relaxation sport adventure material malfeasance labor study or excitement and those are all different things that basically your your operative can uh indulge in to try and uh, relieve their stress that might get them into trouble um, I've got a, I actually added, I I'm using mostly the same traumas that you normally see in blades of the dark, but I added one, which is aloof, um, which is just like, you have trouble, uh, taking things seriously or like acting with the appropriate amount of like, uh, care. This is slightly different from reckless. Um, yeah, all of the they all have special abilities, pretty standard to a Forge in the Dark, and they've all got a more like modern set of uh, item options, which include things like assault rifle, uh, noisemaker, climbing gear, grenades, survival kit, uh, drone, uh, inflatable boat, all that sort of thing. Heart sensor, breaching kit, whatever you need. And um, yeah, I guess. Then I also created a unique task force sheet, which is the version of the crew or outfit sheet. And for that one, um, the different designations that your task force can be, like the different types, are special force, terrorist, counter-terrorist, resistance, criminal, mercenary, or intelligence. And uh, the team went with special forces. So they're task force Einherjar, and they are a special forces team uh, sent into Iceland to try and stabilize the country during this period of conflict uh, on behalf of NATO. Meanwhile, 
there is a Scandinavian military force that is also claiming jurisdiction here and trying to defend the country called Northwind, and there's a bit of, like, distrust between the two factions, between NATO and this newer faction, Northwind. Uh, they're theoretically on the same side, but there's, you know... NATO doesn't necessarily trust this new Northwind organization that's popped up, and Northwind is sort of, uh, you know, wants to establish themselves. So they don't they don't like NATO trying to cut in on their business. Um, one of the things that you get from that's unique to this game is as you complete missions, uh, your standing increases. And at different milestones, you gain different benefits of having standing, which include uh, at the first milestone, you get the ability to stash a weapons cache on site uh, during the mission, like for the mission that you are going to be on. Um, at the next milestone, you get an the exfiltration of your choice at the end of a mission. So you can like call in a helicopter to pull you out, that sort of thing. And then at the third milestone, you can use that to get an artillery strike once per mission that either sends up a flare, uh, rains down heavy explosive, anti-take, shrapnel, or smoke. And um, this element of the game, I actually turned into a kind of... There's a certain level of, like, uh, XCOM to it, I guess, which I have been playing XCOM 2 lately. Um, but, yeah, it, like, it's always a, a thing that you in these games you get upgrades for your crew or what have you um but in this one you have different purchases that you make that basically in that first uh session that i ran i had them land and like be introduced to their new base which is this old uh nato military camp that's basically been like hasn't been it's been vacant since the cold war basically and so it's this old sort of cold war era military camp that they look around and it's like all right well we gotta fix this place up and uh so that first introductory mission was them going around seeing to the upkeep of the place fixing it up because they had a visiting delegation of uh, northwind representatives to impress but uh, as the game goes on, they're going to be able to purchase different facilities to add to that base, uh, including a recruitment center, interrogation chamber, a lab, a listening post, an armory, an infirmary, a safe house. And then they can also improve their uh, deployment methods from motor to motorized to mechanized to airborne. So at the moment, they don't really have any special deployment bonuses, but... Eventually, they can get a fleet of vehicles, make those a fleet of, like, armored vehicles, and then eventually level up to the point where they're airdropping in. And uh, I've only discovered three of the many factions that I've created, but so they've, they've met Northwind, obviously. I've talked about them a bunch, and in the first session, while they were doing their various chores around the base, uh, just like the snake pit scenario that appears in the gi joe rule book uh i had this scenario where basically they're doing chores around the base and then suddenly they become alerted to the fact that there's infiltrators in the base and they had to fight those infiltrators but those infiltrators at in the end were revealed to be employed by jormungandr the the stand-in for cobra basically for this uh game Cool. 
And how did your players enjoy it? They seemed into it. Uh, you know, all of them are way more into are more way more used to Dungeons and Dragons. I don't think any of them have ever played. Uh, I, I don't think any of them ever, ever played any forts in the dark or anything like that, but, uh, hmm. yeah, they seem to dig it, you know, um, it was, it was fairly introductory. It was a lot of like just introducing them to the different personnel around their base and everything. Uh, there were a lot of like moments that if it were a video game would have been moments where like text popped up explaining like, this is something like, there'd be a point where they talked tool tips <laughs> kind of like there, there is a point where they were talking to their intelligence analyst and their intelligence analyst was like, yeah, we've got the comm station working, but it'll be a while before we can like really like get really have eyes and ears everywhere. And like, if it was a, if it were a video game, that would have been the time that was like later you can buy the listening post to increase the amount of intelligence you can gather. All that sort of stuff. So I do have a question, because this is a, a real sort of military focus RPG. Um, and you, you mentioned XCOM. It makes me think, like, wouldn't this lend itself to tactical combat? And I don't feel like uh, the Forge of the Dark system is really focused on tactical combat at all. I don't know. What do you think about that? So obviously they haven't gotten into combat yet. Yeah. They've only had like very, these very brief scuffles that with the infiltrators that ended pretty quickly. I should also say that we've got for the cast of characters, we got long fuse who is an, an Italian demolitions expert. We got Hawk who is a Canadian ranger, uh, sort of a covert ops guy. We got, uh, Kimura who is a Montenegrin spy, um, who, and a revolver expert, uh, likes to show off with how good he is with his revolver. And, uh, then we got shadow Vale, who's just straight up ninja. And, uh, for his character portrait, he's just nice. using a picture of snake eyes. It's great. Why not? I mean, we've got a snake eyes on the team. It's, it's perfect. It's, fr it's freaking snake eyes as the essence 20 books. I, I just think, you know, if you're going to have your GI Joe, uh, s type party, you know, Snake Eyes might as well be uh, mm -hmm. one of the members. Or a Snake Eyes equivalent. Um, what what was your question? What were you saying again? I was asking, you know, I was saying oh, yeah, Forge tactics. in the Dark, to me, doesn't lend itself to tactical combat, whereas you'd think a military RPG would want that kind of thing. So, I do have plans for how I am going to introduce certain tactical elements but one thing that i am really looking to do it's sort of it it's interesting because i don't know uh how much of this like i feel like i'd have to explain a lot of this sort of under the hood forged in the dark stuff to you that isn't necessarily something that you've been aware of be the by the way i've been doing teeth or for example um, do you know of the idea, like, I think it's sort of in the cyberpunk rules, but the idea of, or, or no, you only looked at the player rules for cyberpunk. Is that right? Or did you look at the, yeah, GM? I've basically only encountered forged in the dark games from the player side. Yeah. So forged in the dark has this idea of clocks. Um, basically when there is a threat, you represent it. Uh, or oftentimes you represent it 
by drawing a circle and drawing some lines through that circle to divide it into sections and then that is a clock and based on something in the game that clock will either fill up or count down basically that clock you like you'll fill up the slices of that pie chart you've made um and once that clock is full it means something so a very easy way of translating that is by saying okay uh, a big goon comes down the hallway to fight you guys. I make a four-section clock for him, and that's how many hits it takes to take out that goon. That clock is full means the, the goon's done. Um, a different example would be like... Uh, so in Teeth recently, we had you guys fighting a demon that was summoning like zombies to its location that was also fighting you guys and so for that one i had three clocks going i had a clock that was tracking the damage you did to the demon i had a clock that tracked how big the crowd of zombies was getting from the demon summoning and then i had another clock that once the that would only fill up once the uh zombie swarm clock was full that the third clock was the overwhelmed clock and if that one filled up one of you guys would have been overwhelmed by the swarm of zombies you would have been like pulled down um the thing is this clock system does it make sense to you like do, does all this sort of track yeah it kind of sounds like almost like a like a clicker game you know like a cookie clicker one of those games where you sort of get the, the simultaneous timers, and each represents a different sort of facet of what's going on. Um, it makes sense to me. But again, it doesn't seem... It, it all seems very narrative-driven, which is sort of the appeal of Forged in the Dark in the first place, where it's sort of like the clock runs out, this narrative result happens. It's not quite the same thing as in a game like D&D, if you're playing with a map, where you measure the distance that you can travel and then, you know, there's AC and there's HP and you roll to hit with the bonus or it's very sort of number crunching and, I don't know, I keep saying it, tactical. I mean, more than anything, the reason I wanted to play Forged in the Dark was because I wanted to get past all that stuff about DC and, and calculation and stuff. Like, the, the utility of just seeing the six and knowing that that is a success, like... That is very, very valuable to me and was the main, was one of the main things drawing me to the game. Um, another example of how that clock thing works or, or something about the mechanics of Forge in the Dark is um, we talk about position and effect whenever you roll in Forge in the Dark where your position is like risky or desperate. Uh, your effect will be limited or standard or great um and often if it is a clock that measures like for example if you were just rolling to attack that demon and say you used a, a big sword and i said okay you have great effect that great effect means that when you succeed it'll fill up more slices of that clock just to fill in that like side of the mechanic like effect is measured in basically how many slices of damage you would do to a clock in that very basic example the thing is that 
this system has always like pretty much from the moment I understood the clock system, it reminded me of not clicker games, McGill, but clicks games. Because what other game do you have where you are literally like if you pull the top off of a clicks base, it literally is like it, it looks like a dartboard, really. But it's all divided into slices of like what would show up on the click style. And basically, I have this vision of designing threats for Forged in the Dark where in each slice of the clock, you have like little numbers noted down or like like data noted down in the that basically would look like a dartboard but would basically be shorthand that would tell you not only like how close the clock is to clicking down but like what the current fighting ability of uh, of like so for example um I sort of did this when you guys were fighting, or or no, that this is a bad example. Uh, so I I guess just to make up an example, like you would have say a four slice clock, but then on the first slice it would be like okay, if you attack unarmed with uh, if you attack unarmed while this threat is at four slices then it has limited effect um it is risky and uh like basically how am i what am i trying to explain here basically i want to have it set so that it's like each slice sort of tells you how healthy and how able to fight a threat is when they are at that slice of their health does that make sense in much the same way now that, that the clicks dials do yeah, now that you have compared it to the clicks games, this makes a lot of sense. I can instantly see how to sort of incorporate a form of tactical gaming uh, into this while retaining the forged, the appeal of Forged in the Dark. Um, yeah, I like that idea of the the clock that not only ticks to indicate health or things like that, but like the idea that it can unlock new abilities like in a clicks game. Yeah. That's neat. That that so that's one way that you could do it but also yeah, the way that you have the character like, you know, you don't really have stats in Forged in the Dark, but you would have a kind of like statistical measurement within those slices as you go. And that's an interesting thing of like I have to do a certain amount of like measuring, you know, at what point uh, a different, at what point a certain threat would become injured to the point where it affects their ability to fight? You know, it's like maybe if you're a four slice clock, then once you get down to two slices, then attacking that threat becomes a controlled role instead of a risky role to start off. That sort of thing. That's cool. Well, I'm I'm interested to hear how it develops. There are things that it'll introduce that are not regularly part of Forged in the Dark. Um, I want to have sort of a sense of range uh, in the game. If if not for the players, then at least for the bad guys, so that the players know like if like like so that there is that tactical measurement of like okay, 
these are the zones that are currently like under fire or within range of the enemy so that they can make that tactical decision as they're moving around that sort of thing um and yeah so like ha having range on an enemy depending uh how it's how its status is um it's just like one example of something i may be doing uh to spice it up but all that to say yeah i'm sort of uh that's what i'm doing to add a tactical element i guess is i'm taking the elements of a very tactical game like clicks uh and uh, mix it in Putting putting numbers on them, turn turning them clocks into dartboards. It's a cool idea, Tom, and and a very interesting style that I hadn't considered for an RPG. Yeah, we'll we'll certainly see how it works out. But I mean, so far the f basic forged in the dark system seems to work pretty well for it. Um, also, like I don't. Like I, I'm, I imagine there are some people who maybe if they'd only played Blades in the Dark would wonder how well, or or even Teeth would wonder how well it would translate into like a modern military setting. But the fact is, like Cyberpunk does very little to change the basic rule set to make it like a modern cyberpunk RPG. Like it's not like Cyberpunk has special rules about guns or anything that are not in Blades in the Dark or anything. It's just like, you got guns in that one. I kind of wanted to treat Yeah, my way. concern was definitely less about the setting and more just about the style of game. You know, trying to trying to picture uh, military sim tactics with this system in play. It sounds interesting. Yeah, uh, definitely one thing I did want to uh, lean into and something that is an element of, like, the aftermath that I've introduced is um like there's a lot of of special activities they can do on the base with their aftermath one of the things is actually um they can spend their aftermath activity to gather intelligence which actually like directly determines how many like leads i give them on their next mission basically like uh oh well you've heard about this happening here but then there's word that some that like a convoy may be coming through this area and so you may want to check that out instead and um that's definitely something that i want to lean into as well is like just giving them you know i've talked before about how uh part of the inspiration for this was like ghost recon wildlands and stuff and how that has a very sprawling open world with like a network of uh targets to take on and i wanted to include that sort of element of like letting the players decide what direction they went in and also that that goes right back to like letting them decide what type of uh special or what type of task force they were because like you'll notice that in the designations i had on offer there was like mercenary which could have had them playing more of a jagged alliance game but i also had like criminal or, or terrorist if we wanted to see what it was like to work for cobra or something like that cool you playing again soon uh yeah hopefully next week um it's supposed to be my new weekly thing so yeah hopefully Ah, so that probably means that eventually we'll be hearing about this. It's very possible. It's very possible. 
It depends, uh, depends how far I get before the hiatus, uh, stops, before the hiatus is done. Do you want to proceed to Coyote's Aegis, or do we want to pop over to the Danger Room? I guess I'll head over to Coyote's Aegis. I got it all ready here, the, the, the record, the record of the game. Having checked in with all the relevant contacts following their op in the vault under Agalock, the party returns to Omega Base. They cruise onto the gro grounds of Omega Base on their vehicles, the Jeep and the motorbike, making good time and arriving before nightfall. Though there is still traffic to and from the base, at this point the grounds seem to have cleared out somewhat. They suspect that the progress they saw at the outpost earlier has allowed much of the army to make camp closer to Agalock. While it definitely seems like a good time to turn in for a night's rest, they have at least one item, the strangely alive tentacle flail that they acquired, that would warrant a trip to the armory and the labs in the same section. And they also suspect that Coyote would like them to report in following their errand. And uh, Hex says, uh, her Alex says, Hex is half convinced he hallucinated the staff, so he'll head off to find Coyote. And Chantel says, right, I kept the flail. Do I get a sense of what it does? I said, I mean, you probably get the sense that it would pro be unpleasant to be on the receiving end of the tentacles, particularly because they seem to have bristly little spikes under the ends, almost the way an octopus has suction bits. But you may roll arcana. Meanwhile, Hex, I asked Hex where he went to look for uh, Coyote, and uh, with the various options around the base... Uh, Hex chose, he said, I I'm going to try the coffee tent. And this is something that I didn't really cover. Um, but back before the operation where they went and met the Mykonids, uh, when they were briefing on that operation, one of the people who briefed them, they met in like uh, a coffee tent out on the grounds of Omega Base. It was just like, you know, a little tent set up where the troops could come in, get a fresh brew, get get re rejuvenated and head out um so hex goes uh checks out the coffee tent after hours um gent gets 17 on arcana so i say there is an item like this one that you've heard of gent drow are known to craft tentacle rods which can be used to restrain foes with little more than a flick of the wrist this doesn't really match what you know about those though it seems bigger and uh, you have no reason apart from that similarity to suspect that it might be of drow make. And uh, Hey, I gave one of my players a tentacle rod a few adventures back. Hey, there you go. Uh, this one I was actually, once they got it uh, identified, instead of just a tentacle rod, I made it into a plus two vicious flail. So a uh, plus two flail that does extra, uh, I think it's an extra 2d6 on a crit. Uh, in addition to the normal crit damage. Love that love that vicious uh, damage weapon bonus. All it does is make your crits even more critical. Um, so, Gent, knowing that, says, I'm not prepared to give it up yet, so I'm going to follow Hex. And Hex goes to the coffee tent to find that it has largely been cleared out. Many of the nearby tents are gone entirely. Bet is still at the coffee tent with a rather reduced supply and no patrons currently. She seems surprised when Hex enters. Oh, hey, uh, trying to stay up? And here is where I'm going to include a picture of Bet 
I bet you don't remember Bet. <laughs> hmm. You know, it sounds familiar because this is Bet, B-E-T-T-E, right? Uh, no, just B-E-T. Then no, I've completely got it wrong. She's an orcish waitress turned barista matched with Trey the Illithid. So back to, basically back when they <laughs> were doing Chessie's Cupids, uh, I think it was oh, in wow. the first uh, run back when they were doing the Deathlands tour, uh, one of their clients was Trey the Illithid, and they matched him with this waitress that they met at one of the rest stops, an uh, orc named Bet. Uh, but now she's the barista at the coffee tent. That's great. I like... I like that you're bringing it back, the ch the history of Chessie's Cupids. And uh, so Hex says, no, sorry, looking for the brass. Honestly, relieved he's not here. Have you seen Coyote around? And she shakes her head and says, where do you normally meet? Alex, Alex says, I feel dumb. He doesn't have an office, right? And I say, thinking back, Hex probably wouldn't call to mind any specific office, but the briefing room would stand out as the place you've seen Coyote the most. Alternatively, the MPOC does have dedicated offices on the base, now that you think of it. Those are sort of new, because they needed the, to give most of the space on the base to the armory. So Hex says, the briefing room, I suppose, but it seems a little late to catch him there. I'll keep looking. So he heads to the briefing room, and Bet says, sure, don't you want anything to, before you go? And uh, he says, nah, it's already been a long enough day. Thanks, though. And Gent says, five shots of espresso. <laughs> and uh, Bet smiles and nods at Hex. And then I say, oh, does Gent come in and ask for that? And uh, Chantel says, yes, Kenku on caffeine. And Alex says, Connor is in tow, but looking pretty exhausted. And I say, uh, Bet raises her eyebrows in surprise at Gent's sudden entrance. Um, well... I don't have espresso shots necessarily, but I have some specially strong brew I can set you up with. She reaches down to open a container under the table she's standing at. If Dent doesn't change their mind, Bet will serve them up a hot mug of special black. And uh, so Chantel says, nice. And after that, Bet wishes them all luck as they depart from the briefing room. Gent says, done and done, and I will flip her double the cost as a tip. Mostly because as a former barista, I get it. That's a little note from Chantel. And she <laughs> says, thanks, and smiles brightly. The coffee is hot, bitter, and has a bit of a spicy, not quite spicy, but it has an aftertaste that has a, a certain amount of zip to it that complements its energizing effect. And then uh, after Chantel says, cool, I say, when was the last time Gent ate? They say, um, probably after we blew up the lair. And I say... The coffee, though potent, gives Jed a bit of a stomach ache. Hex and Connor can hear the roar of the relatively small avian stomach at a distance of several feet. <laughs> it's probably not good to drink this on an empty stomach. And Jen says, oh dear, I will sheepishly follow behind Hex and Connor. Visiting the briefing room where they normally meet Coyote, they find that the door is locked. There does not seem to be any light or sound emanating from behind the door. And Jen hmm. says, not like a lock has stopped us before. And I say, Gent, your mind begins to race. Locked door, darkness behind, secrets await. And uh, Hex knocks, and I say, Noth no answer, nothing to stop you. And Alex says, is Gent doing this? And Gent takes out their satchel of lockpicks and taps their foot behind Hex. And I say, what does the conference look like? What does the conference room look like when Coyote's not there? The caffeinated mind reels with possibility. And Gent <laughs> says, unguarded quills or pens, I will pick the lock. 
And Alex or Hex says, he's not in there. I'm going to go find someone to ask. And uh, Gent says, excellent. You and Connor go ask. And they make a Thieves Tools check. And they roll 32. And I say, at first, it's a bit disappointing. It's just the same, but dark. But wait, what's that? At the end of the table where Coyote usually sits. Documents! And in them, maybe secrets. But also the big map behind. You can look at it up close as much as you want now. But, uh... Maybe the documents are more interesting. Hex, do you have a specific destination in mind? And he says, I'll wander towards the offices looking for a guard or an officer to ask. And uh, Gent asks what Connor is doing. And I say, would it also occur to you at this point that you have a sending crystal you could use to contact Coyote remotely since he doesn't seem to be in the obvious places? I assume Connor is following along with Hex. And he says, yeah. And, uh, so Gent closes the door and gets a look at some of the documents. Meanwhile, Hex pulls out his sending stone and types in, You up? I could use a debriefing. <laughs> that's what Alex said. Uh, that's not how it happened. You don't type into sending stones. <laughs> uh, and I say, Hex would actually be able to confirm that Coyote is currently at the offices. Sorry about that. Come on by. Meanwhile, Gent rolls investigate. And I say, you find Coyote in the MPOC offices speaking with Greasel, who is accompanied by Spoot. It seems only a few people are working here at the moment. When they enter, Coyote finishes his conversation with Greasel, who goes to leave. Coyote then approaches them, and the first thing he does is return their griffin figurine. You remember that? They gave that guy a griffin figurine to help him get away from the Illithid lair. I do remember that. So Coyote gives it back to them. Glad to see you're all right. Well, that's nice. Ned was pretty shaken up. We had the prisoner temporarily. Unfortunately, it disappeared from holding, Coyote frowns. So we don't have a lot of answers. What do you have to report, he asks. And uh, meanwhile, Gent, with their investigation, carefully uh, they carefully open and go through the documents such that it would be nearly impossible to tell that they had been touched. There are several reports here. They're broken down into collections, which are the beginning of sections, which then summarize analysis of the intel on, of the intel on those reports. You have a bit of trouble focusing, but you can tell that there are th at least three main sections. One regarding updates to the map, represented in totality on the wall behind them. One regarding an upcoming operation based on the enemy schedule that they helped inform on when they infiltrated the mantle. And one regarding a series of operations to follow. The first section provides what is effectively a legend for the many markers and symbols now pinned to the map behind Gent. Meanwhile, talking to Coyote, Hex says, We followed the lead through Alistair and found some kind of brain eater's lair. It seemed to be being attacked by a number of creatures like the one we sent you. And Coyote thinks to himself as he processes Hex's brief report. Strange that Alistair is keeping in touch in his own way. I wonder how that figures into Mephisto's schemes. Meanwhile, uh, Gent attempts to understand the map with the information that they have. Uh, Coyote continues, The creature was a gith, a gith Yankee specifically, we believe. The species harbors a long-standing hatred toward illithids that may account for their presence in the creature's lair. Interesting. In any case, I'm glad you handled it. Did you gain any additional intel in the field while you were at it? They recall the map and guard schedules that Gent found on the table in the first chamber of the vault. And the Hex says, yeah, Gent picked up some intel. I'll get her to bring it to you. I think she turned in early. 
Meanwhile, as Gent rummages through the documents in the briefing room, I say, Gent, you can basically get a sense looking at the map now of where key points are. The ones that are most important seem to be the mantle, Ash Green Outpost, the nearby breadbasket turned industrial sector where many of Agalok's non-human slaves are put to work, the Draelic Perimeter, worked out as a line with large orange blocks denoted key, denoting key defensive staging areas along the edge of the forest, the southern coast, including the spot where they were dropped off when they were investigating the Myconids, and the last known location of King Cap's Myconid colony, which is known to move around and so the marker's current location is not necessarily fixed. Getting back to the conversation with Coyote, Coyote nods and says, Good to hear. Better get your rest. You've got a big mission tomorrow. Gotta get into position and uh, for when Lord Dio becomes vulnerable. Time to follow up on that last infiltration job. And the goblin gives an assertive nod. And uh, Gent takes one last look around to detect any secret hidey holes around the briefing room and rolls, in her words, a fucking nat one. Of course. Another thing Gent can glean is the list of operation names for the foreseeable future, though they are clearly being used to obfuscate larger plans in case of just such a security breach as this one. Good thing Gent isn't working for the Nightside Eclipse. And uh, Gent asks, Would any of this information be good to pass on to my avian tribe? Like, would they, be would they benefit from any of this operation? I gave them the rundown on the next uh, bunch of operations. Um, Operation Goldeneye, we'll be doing this one in the near future, it seems. Operation Falling Moon, lots of Draelic military intel connected to this one. Operation Riverbed, very little intel available to them on this one. Seems highly classified, but maybe a big deal. And Operation Brittle Heart, which contains more Draelic military intel. The last three all seem connected and share references to several military reports. As for whether this information is useful to our tribe, I said, I don't think there's a lot of obvious reuse for your tribe here. It's all to do with Agalok, basically, which is a place your tribe is happy to avoid like the plague. It's definitely haunted slash cursed. And so with that, Jed attempts to sneak out and locks the door behind them. And, uh... <laughs> Good job. Hell yeah. Um... After that, they went down to the armory. So they meet up again in the armory and labs. When they arrive at the armory and labs, they see only Al working in the labs by himself. And Hex says, burning the midnight oil. And I say, Hex, you suspect Dax is in the armory. You just need to go to the little window and get his attention. Al turns around and gives him a wave. Ah, yeah. Hey, guys. Just doing some more tests with this fungus you guys found. It's like, how are we even supposed to know if it'll work against the, uh, the you-know-who? And Hex says, well, if it turns out they're deadly poison, let me know, because I ate one recently. And he shakes his head. Anyways, how have you guys been? Get any use out of those things I was working on? Ah! He lets out a single horse laugh at Hex's remark. Hex moves on to the armory. I say, I should actually mention that Hex is suffering from one level of exhaustion until long rest due to the aftermath of the super stim pack. But I figure that's all coming across so far. And uh, he has no difficulty getting Dax's attention. Hey, Hex, what's the word? And uh, meanwhile, Gent goes to ask Al about the stim pack options. Hex, talking to Dax, says, I was hoping you'd take a look at uh, something for me. And he pulls out the silver sword of the Githyanki. And Al says to Gent, 
Uh, Al gets excited about talking about the Stimpaks. Oh, why? Did you use the one I gave to you? How'd it go? Meanwhile, Dex mar Dax marvels at the sword. I heard something about a gif on the base. I'm guessing this has something to do with that. And uh, Hex says, had a little run-in. Yeah, got a souvenir. This is confusing. I'm doing like two characters having two different conversations at the same time. These guys... It's pretty impressive, the party. <laughs> it just helps that it's all written down for me. And uh, so Dax says, want me to lock it up for you? I'll pay the 3,000 gold piece finder's fee, no question. But uh, they tend to be pretty serious about these things. Carrying one around, you may find they try to uh, get it back, Dax explains. Meanwhile, Chantel, or Jet talking to uh, Al, says, Well, it got Hex back up and running just as quick as we needed him, so that was effective. I was hoping to pick up a few more and perhaps any other quick heals you might have. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, good to hear about the performance, Al says, jotting down a few notes. This is great. I'm pretty short on field reports, so I'll tell you what. I'll give you a regular stim pack and another super, super stim pack for free. How's that sound? Consider a bonus for helping me get some solid results from these things. I'll toss them in with whatever potions you're buying, of course. And uh, Gent says, that'd be great. Anything you want me to pay speci special attention to this time around? Gent uh, spends much of the money they have saved on potions. And so I uh, revealed the armory to them. And uh, that's my Google Drive sheet that had the armory. I highlighted the potions. And uh, I said, honestly, the report you just gave is good. Though if you notice any side effects after use, I'd like to know about them. Basically, how well they worked according to your needs and what the consequences were for the subject afterwards, if any, as always, go easy with these things. You don't want to make take. You don't want to take more than one super stim in a day. Trust me, Al explains to Gent. Gent says uh, they have a fuck ton of money, so they think they're gonna sell. They're gonna buy ten supreme healing potions. And I say I can do that. Meanwhile, Hex hands the uh, plus two silver vicious life stealing great sword of wounding uh, in. That is the. Uh, blade of the gith yankee and takes the 3000 gold finder's fee they distribute the 3000 gold amongst the party um spending 4000 gold on 10 supreme healing potions jen is now at 18520 gold and 19520 gold after the 1000 gold share from the big sword uh jen grabs three supreme healing potions, two superior healing potions, and three regular healing potions for 1,850 gold. Do you ever see this kind of payout on healing potions? Do you ever run a game where they buy this many healing potions? No. <laughs> Goddamn spending no, a fortune on them. My, my, my players are generally pretty good about doing it in smaller increments. <laughs> Nah, man, these are these are uh, top level MPOC agents. They gotta, they gotta uh, all get all their stuff. So, they get a whole bunch of stuff. They get stims. They get super stims. They get all different supreme, superior, regular healing potions. All this and that. And uh, uh, Hex mentions to Ki Hex mentions to Gent that Coyote wanted the intel that Gent found in the tunnels. And uh, they say that we say that they'll handle that next time we see them. So the next day, Hex has time to prepare something to eat before Coyote summons them to the briefing room. 
The weather on the base is brisk, and they realize that it's getting colder in these parts. They suspect Egglock will be entering its notorious wintry phase the next time they visit. And uh, Alex says, I will make a Deathlands Avgolomono for everyone. I don't know what that is. He says, a soup of blended rice, chicken, and lemon. Uh, delicious on a misty morning by the shore. Gent recalls a single element from their dream when they awake from their sleep. It is an unfamiliar omen to them. They remember spotting a blackbird par perched on a tree. What stands out to them is the bird had one talent too many on each of its feet. They may roll in, and Gent may roll it religion to try and interpret it. So they roll a 25. I say this definitely has the makings of an omen or vision, but they cannot determine the origin or meaning of the portent. It is alien to them apart from the obvious bird imagery. I have them roll insight with a 23. I say thinking on what might have caused such a dream, it is also impossible not to take into consideration your newly acquired mysterious tentacle flail. And uh, Gent says, hmm, do I get the sense that I am the bird? I say, not necessarily. It felt more like you were the viewer, a Kenku looking at a bird in a tree. I say, okay. I say, but perhaps it was a reflective sort of omen. You aren't sure. They say, I won't mention it specifically to the group, but maybe ask Connor if he has knowledge of omens or bird-like omens. I have uh, Connor roll religion on this, and uh, he gets a 13, and I say, yeah, Connor knows bird omens. Sometimes burbomen good, like a bur like a good burb before a fight. But sometimes a burbomen bad, like a bad burb before a fight. Or maybe like an albatross with sailors, you know? Lots of burbomens <laughs> and superstitions and such. And Gent decides that they will pass on eating the chicken while Connor talks about burbs. Gent has the opportunity to see Coyote first thing in the morning, some hours before the briefing, allowing them to hand over the intel as early as possible, and they choose to do this. The intel seems vitally important to Coyote. This will be crucial. I can't tell you what a lucky find this is. We may be able to save some lives with these guard schedules. Good work, Agent. Gent will nod sternly and ask Coyote about bird omens. It occurs to Gent, having spied the documents behind the scenes, that all the military reports were effectively given at a distance from the enemy, such that this intel would be much more detailed than the army would normally have access to. Then Coyote says, Bird omens? What kind? And uh, Gent says, Birds with mutations. Not me, of course. I have the right number of parts. Coyote says, Well, <laughs> I don't think we've got any reports like that, but there's no telling what passes for normal in the depths of the Agalock. Uh... Where did you see this mutant bird? And they say, in a tree. Seemed odd. Probably nothing. And uh, then Chantel asks, can you explain what I figured out with the documents? That the intel we have means that someone's on the inside. And I say, I think the main takeaway would be that the MPOC and the Army are coordinating for a series of big operations that involve a preliminary research a lot of preliminary research and are important enough to be heavily cloaked in op names and references to other intel so that if there were a spy that got their hands on the intel, they wouldn't know what was coming. And so Chantel says, oh, okay, it's a biggie. And I say, basically, imagine like D-Day in World War II. A lot of effort making sure it stays on the down low despite it being a massive op. And then I say, let's proceed to the briefing. Inside the briefing room, they can see the map behind Coyote festooned with pinned markers indicating Draylic outposts, areas under consistent surveillance, reports of movement, and more. Gent notices that the area of the vault has had new markers added to it since yesterday. 
Good day, everyone. Not too much to go over today, so I'll try not to take up too much of your time, Coyote says, having already placed dossiers labeled Operation Goldeneye at different spots around the table. The dossiers primarily contain intel that they've already had access to at this point. In addition to the usual updated maps, they find summaries of the information they gained while infiltrating the mantle accompanied by relevant scout reports. Apart from these are the three profiles of Draelic personnel, two of which are familiar to Connor and Hexakila from their time operating the caravan. We've had scouts and spies watching the mantle as constantly as we can manage since you got us access to Lord Dio's schedule. We know he'll be leaving the safety of the city under guard, but so far we can only speculate as to where he'll be headed. That's where your contacts come in. He indicates the profiles at the back of the dossier. A couple of these should be familiar to Connor and Hex from their early ops. The first is another familiar face from the Battle of Butchertown, in fact. He tosses his copy of the profile for a, a human soldier labeled Ram, Sir Ram toward the center of the table. I included a picture of Sir Ram, a human knight. Go. Sir Ram. Hey, nice. So this is uh, another guy who was present at the Battle of Butchertown. He was just a knight who happened to be at the town when the battle happened, and he joined in on the defenses. Sir Ram. Some great socks. Sir Ram is one of the tactical minds working on the upcoming Draelic offensive in Agalok. He won't be giving you your primary objective, but consider any instructions from him to be high-priority secondary goals as they are certain to assist the larger army when the time comes. The next profile is for Rin, a young tiefling prodigy in the fields of magic and medicine who previously traveled with the caravan through the Deathlands. Rin has acting as a civilian researcher and consultant alongside the Draelic military, has been asked for, asking for the assistance of an MPOC team to gather something important from the field. I understand it's a substance she's after, and it's one we'd need to risk sending agents in close to acquire, but I confess I don't know what it's for, if it's a weapon or what. Regardless, you're the first team that's in a position to help that I feel might be able to take the necessary risks. Again, a secondary objective, but likely an important one in the long run. Rin will have more details for you, naturally. And included a picture of Rin, the tiefling prodigy. The last profile is fairly light on details compared to the others and concerns a human Draelic soldier named Francesca. Finally, your primary contact for the main objective. She's the one who got the critical shift that will spot Dio's movements when he leaves the mantle. She'll tell you she'll tell you where he's going, with who, what to expect, and what the recommended tactical course of action is given the situation. Obviously, I trust your own expertise to color this strategic assessment, but she's the one that will have the freshest report available to you. And then I included a picture of Francesca, a human soldier. I like these picks. These are all good. Yeah, is, Sir, is is Sir Ram? Is that from an Osprey book? Probably. It's some kind of old <laughs> uh, historical book with a picture of a Highlander, like an Argyle Highlander, and then uh, we got some picture of a young Tiefling that I got off the internet, and then there's a picture of like a, a Viking spear, Viking spear maiden that I got off the internet that I think is from some sort of board game or something. I can't remember. Coyote closes the dossier in front of him and pushes it to the side. 
You'll be meeting all of them at a specific spot marked on the map you've been given. It's a newly built structure where we're keeping all our maps to coordinate for up-to-date uh, developments in the field. Effectively, our forward cartography office. Better not to lose any time on this one, given the distance between here and the mantle. Any questions before you go? And there's a unanimous nope. And they, I ask them if they head out directly or if they have any business to handle or stops to make first. And uh, they say, uh... No, I think we're good to head out. And I say, I assume you take the Jeep and motorbike combo. Jed says, yeah, why break a good thing? I say, alternatively, you could use the portal room to try deploying to the Draelic perimeter directly, or you could even use aircraft. With teleportation, you wouldn't necessarily be able to do the same thing to get back, which might pose quite a hike after the op. The planes, on the other hand, pose an inherent stealth risk as they draw attention at great distances, just to explain my reasoning for figuring you would use the land vehicles. And so, of course, they vote the vehicles as usual, going with the bike and the jeep as their best bet. Once again... Their vehicles give the, them the ability to turn what would otherwise be a, at least a day's travel into a leisurely few hours. As they predicted, the weather gets colder as they travel south from the base. But they also note another natural event. While the Deathlands have a reputation for being shrouded in darkness, the sky has slowly been turning from an unnatural smoky black to a neutral gray. Now, it seems, the clouds are finally giving way to Paylor's light in places. The rare shaft of sunlight shooting through to the ruinous terrain of the acrid plain stirs Connor's spirit and brings a smile to his face. Light is at last taking hold in the places of darkness. They arrive at an outpost consisting of little more than a fence of wooden palisades, a couple of unfinished watchtowers, and the building they were told to go to. The structure has been hastily constructed out of wood, but seems relatively stable for such a recent development. Smoke rises from a black pipe jutting out of the roof of the structure. In the distance, they can see signs of a Draelic army encampment a few miles away. The tree line of the forest is closer, but they can see a path has been carved out to allow quick travel from the outpost of the camp. There is some sense of tension in the air immediately as they exit their vehicles, between the obvious activity of the Draelic camp nearby and the fact that nobody is currently out in the open here. No signs of any conflict yet, but they get a strong feeling that the, this could change at any moment, and they imagine the sensation is shared by everyone stationed in the area. And uh, they see that their contacts are not outside, but their briefing indicates a specific building here as being the forward cartography office a coyote mentioned. So that's where they head. Inside, they find a map room presently occupied by several people, including Sir Ram and Rin. The ceiling is 15 feet high, and a fireplace is constructed of large bricks and iron scrap is presently providing warmth to the whole place. Apart from Sir Ram and Rin, they see a human, three goblins, an elf, all men. They do not see Francesca. Everyone looks to them intently as they enter. Rin is leaning against the wall at the doorway to a small back room they can see into, while Saram stands by the fireplace with a small map in one hand. The goblins and the human are seated near the door they've come in through, all with water skins either in hand or on the table in front of them. Meanwhile, the elf sits on a stool by himself at a small table next to the fireplace eating a bowl of stew. Good day, everyone. That's a hex. The goblins seem to reinitiate a conversation they were having before the party entered, and the elf returns to his stew. Sir Ram rolls up the map in his hand and approaches the group. He gives, you, he gives them all a salute. Well met, agents. I'm afraid Francesca hasn't reported in yet, but I suspect she's on her way. 
In the meantime, I can provide a secondary objective for your mission that will help out the Draelic Offensive, if you feel up to it. And Rin watches the group expectantly. And uh, Hex says, certainly, what can we help you with? And uh, Sir Ram says, I've gone over the reports from your infiltration mission in the mantle a few times, uh, uh, a few times each. Do you remember a fellow by the name of Dexter? McGill, do you remember a fellow by the name of Dexter? Oh, man. You can probably uh, recognize where's... him. Yeah. Yeah, I do recognize him. The guy that every time I post him, Jen seems to have a big laugh at him. Yep. And they say, I believe so. <laughs> Heck says, yeah, I believe I do. Trusting guy. And I post that pic and said, this motherfucker. And Jen says, right. <laughs> and I, uh, Sir Ram continues, apparently, which is a hell of a weakness for us to exploit, because as far as we can tell, he's spy master for Lord Dio. Ram smiles. Granted, you may have had the advantage of a favorable disguise then. Regardless, what I need, or at least what would really help our forces, is for you to take him alive. Not sure exactly how you'll pull such a capture off, but from what I understand, you MPOC types have your ways, Ram chuckles. And uh, I have everyone roll insight. And we got a 17 from Jen, a 19 from Connor, a 25 from Hex. I say they remember that Dexter was the one in charge of the guard around the Lord's estate. He seemed quick to lean on the services of his men, and Gent had little difficulty breaking into his, his little guard shed, taking vital intel without his knowledge. He also interviewed Connor and Hex when they were posing as nobles. But, as Sir Ram points out, that all happened when they had the benefit of special magic disguises. Without a human disguise, he may be much harder to manipulate. So then, Rin is eager eagerly waiting the group's approach from the following the, the conclusion of their business with Sir Ram. And uh, Gent says, uh, we could get dirt on it, on Dexter to blackmail him. And Hex said, yeah, I bet he's got, he's got, got dirt. Let's go talk to Rin. So, oh, on the, uh, on the angle of uh, dirt on Dexter, Saram asks, did you have anything in mind? His incompetence seems self-evident to some extent. Maybe that's the angle. Evidence that he's failed in his duties, Saram offers. And Hex says, or we could make it look like he's into other species, use their xenophobia against them. And Chantel says, I like both those ideas. And as they approach Rin, she straightens up to greet the group. Hi there, are you... I requested the MPOC's assistance with something. I don't mean to presume, but were you told to find me? She looks hopeful. And Gent says, the MPOC you ordered. She breathes a sigh of relief, glancing at Sir Ram, then smiles. Good, good, thank you for coming. I know this is a lot to ask, given everything else going on, but... Well, I've been studying an anomaly that's been reported by scouts in the Agalock region, and if there's a chance the data I'm missing could be critical to the army, I thought it best to volunteer my services. I just need you guys to take the risk of getting me a sample. Gent says, what sample do you need? She says, it will be fairly obvious if you see it. It's a kind of purple gemstone that has been discovered here and there in the forest. It's possible the people there are collecting it for their own uses, though I haven't yet determined what those might be. If you can't find any natural deposits in the area, see if you can find any stashes kept by the humans. If they've deemed it worth harvesting, then I'm even more eager to learn about it. And Jen says, what are you hoping to do with them? Rin says, best case scenario, I experience the disappointment of learning that it's just some rare and unique gem. I don't think any of us want to take the chance that it's something more than that, though. 
And uh, Chantel says, do you have any, do you have one already for us to see? And Rin says, there's not much I can do beyond study the substance, but if it has some hidden power, say some connection to the enchantments that permeate the forest, I believe I can find out. She pulls out a small poach and opens it. She reaches in with two fingers and withdraws the tiniest sliver of a purple mineral. Most of our scouts don't have the time or inclination to break off more than a little bit. Not for, not enough for my purposes, as I'm sure you've guessed. And uh, Jen says, ooh, is it super pretty for me? And Hex says, we can keep an eye out. And I say, I mean, Jen probably likes some nice amethyst. And this is like super rare deep purple amethyst that is only found in very specific places. I guess it depends how much rarity factors into Jen's system of value. And Jen says, very cool. We will definitely keep an eye out. I say, and it might be magic. So, you know, and then uh, I had everyone roll perception. Jenk got a 24, Hex got an 18, Connor got a 12. I say, you all hear someone running toward the building outside. What do you do? And uh, Alex says, pistol up, quick draw style. Jen says, I take out my sword, but not light it on fire. I'm in a wood structure after all. Connor simply turns to the door. Everyone inside but Saram looks a little panicked. The human knight puts his hand to his sword. They follow the sounds such that what follows is not entirely surprising. As the fast footsteps draw toward the entrance, they see the door slam open. Standing in the doorway is Francesca, clearly somewhat out of breath. Breath. Or, uh... <laughs> out of breasts. Oh, yeah, I, I sort of just said breasts. Like Habnabress, a character from... Oh. <laughs> but I don't know, clearly somewhat out of breath. She has a backpack hanging off one shoulder. She clearly looks panicked. She looks to all of them with steely determination and says, We've got incoming. Hex bolts out the door. Connor looks at the goblins and says, I hope you've got your firearms training. The goblins look back at Connor somewhat blankly. Francesca calls after Hex. Wait, how do we want to play this? Saram unsheaths his sword. Get them before they get us, Jed says, and follows Hex out the door. And that's where we broke. Nice. So that was Operation Goldeneye, which was based on uh, a DDEX314, I believe it is, which is Death on the Wall, uh, which really we haven't gotten into what it's really going to be about, but Death on the Wall starts off with the party uh, meeting. They're supposed to meet a contact at this tavern, and their contact or the person that meets up with them ends up like arriving at the cavern with like tons of bad guys on their back. And in that module, the way it works is that the person is like, I've got bad guys on my tail. I can't do this job anymore. And basically hands off a special like bag of equipment to the players and are like, my mission is now your mission and you better get out of here before these bad guys show up. And, uh, but in this case, it's this Draelic outpost, and someone's running back to the front, and it sounds like they've got bad guys on their heels, so it's going to be a shootout on the frontier. That's exciting, and that uh, that module sounds cool. I should read up on it uh, in its original version. I mean, uh, wait to say that. Uh, wait, wait until I've uh, actually got into what the module's actually about to say that, is what I'll say. Because... Fair enough. 
uh, I'll be able to tell you later what this what this mission is actually about. And it's a bit more of a sell. Well, I like the hook. I like where this is going. It is the follow-up to the one where they uh, had to get the Lord's schedule. Oh, yeah. Uh, what was that one called? Um, it's on the tip of my brain. Because it was... Was it either it was Hills Far Reclaimed? Hills Far. Yeah, Hills I was going to say it's one. Of, it's a Hills Far one. Well, neat. Hills Far Reclaimed. More. Not to be confused with Harried and Hills Far. And this yeah. one is Death on the Wall. Nice. So, that's all my stuff. Cue the theme song. Here we are. RPG Danger Room. Man. Oh, man. Extended cut. Yeah. I used to... I used to do a show on Twitch where I get real rowdy and I'd throw myself around and it'd sort of be a joke. It's like I'd do a song that I'd throw myself around such that the mic got knocked <laughs> over and all this stuff. That's all on video, so you know it, it paid off better. I, I almost went into a very intense version of the song for this one, but uh, managed to restrain myself. So we're going to talk about this RPG called Don't Rest Your Head. Uh, I got a big list that I slowly work my way through of just interesting RPGs to cover in the Danger Room. And uh, every time it's it's my turn to select a new one, I go through the list and I sort of I read a couple of like reviews, skim a few kind of uh, miss hearing about online. Palladium. <laughs> Well, you know what? Maybe I should do some Palladium-related thing. Next time. Sure, next time. If I don't get to Nobilis, I'll get to something in Palladium. Hell it yeah. It has been a very long time since we've we've gone through any any Kevin Seam... Shoot, we've even covered the pronunciation. Yeah. Simbida. And, uh... Yeah, there's so much of it. We could talk about... But this time... Oh, sorry. We could talk about uh, probably, I would argue, his most canceled creation, the Autistic Seven. Oh my god! <laughs> From uh, what's the what's the horror one? Not Nightbane. That was what I was gonna say. Um, oh, what was it called? I remember it was always advertised on the back of the Rift books I got. God, my brain's not working, Tom. I've been yeah, working too hard. It's a lot of content. A lot of content for Dead Dead Rain, uh, the Palladium zombie game that is like much later in it. Oh, is it Beyond the Supernatural? Yeah, Beyond the that's Supernatural. The I'm sure that's the one that had Autistic Savant. Fuck off. Well, you know, I don't think we've even covered Beyond the Supernatural, so there you True. go. That's a perfect, perfect danger room pick. Um... You brought up Nightbane, and uh, honestly, Beyond the Supernatural is kind of a good uh, touch point for what I'm bringing to the table this time, which is Don't Rest Your Head. Uh, 
A Game of Insomnia in the Mad City by Fred Hicks. This, uh, as I said at the top, the setting for this will seem very familiar. And, you know, it's a, it's a cool setting, but like Nightbane is a perfect example. It's one of those settings where the characters, they live in a city that seems mundane, but then something happens that awakens them to the world that exists below the surface. You know, there's a bit of like City of Mist here, but also things like, <clears throat> like uh, Dark City or Underworld or Neverwhere is a, a real big source of just Neil Gaiman in general, American Gods maybe, Coraline I'd put in here. Uh, just any one of those sort of dark fairy tale creepy, uh, often leather-clad, you know, city at night. Uh, you could probably pull some inspiration for something from something like Sin City or like The Matrix. And there's a, a you, you know what I'm talking about here, right? You, you get that vibe? Yeah. Also, I looked it up. It's the autistic psychic savant. And is it from Beyond the Beyond the Supernatural? Yeah, it's literally advertised as being in the core book, the second oh edition. Oh my god! <laughs> oh boy! But why would I pick "Don't Rest Your Head" when it's such a familiar setting? Like this is, uh, I, I will say, like I'll talk a bit about the world of Mad City later on because uh, it is pretty cool. Like I like the the suggested NPCs, the characters you might encounter in Mad City. I like the world that Hicks here has written. Um, but as I keep saying, like, this is, this is very well-trod territory, even in RPGs. So what intrigues me about this is the gameplay. This has a really, this is an interesting form of gameplay to me. Um, I would be really curious to see it in action. I didn't have time to look up to see if there are any like uh, actual play videos on YouTube of Don't Rest Your Head. Uh, oh, and I should say, Don't Rest Your Head, uh, the title refers to the fact that your characters, all the, the player characters are all insomniacs. They no longer sleep through the night. And as such, they have been sort of awakened to the other world that exists all around them. Uh, the lack of sleep has allowed them to finally see through the veil to what lies beneath. Insomniac um, psychic savant. Yeah, you could you could play that. You could. Um, here's what you need to play. The player needs three white six-sided dice, six black six-sided dice, six to eight red six-sided dice looking like a game of fiasco and then a pocket full of change or you could use like poker chips you need tokens basically about 10 tokens uh and they're all going to get jumbled together in a bowl so you don't want it to be anything of great value you know for you canadian listeners don't don't use loonies for for this game and then the gm gets unless you're freaking rich i guess the GM gets 10 to 15 six-sided dice of any color. They get their own handful of tokens. And then they have two bowls. One light bowl and one dark bowl. Or one clear and one opaque. However you want to represent it. 
need one to represent the light and one to represent the dark. I should should make uh, a token-based game that specifically uses toonies for the tokens that's like, this is a rich person's game. (laughs) Specifically designed to to get the players fucking around with money. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain the different mechanics, and I actually think that maybe the best thing to do would be to generate a character. And in doing so, I can just sort of expand on each of the different stats and mechanics as they relate. And through that, you'll get a sense of how the game works. And in fact, the uh, the source book, uh, it also starts with character creation. So, uh, like, it gives a brief summary of the setting, but then it goes right into making a character. So, Tom... Let's make a character, shall we? Are you feeling feeling up to it? Yes. I mean, I was going to say, I agree that, like, oftentimes making a character is the best way to, like, get into a system or, like, to learn it. So so here we go. So here are the two pages of your character sheet. They're, they're pretty bare bones. So there's that one. And then there is page two and so the the way you start character creation and don't rest your head is a questionnaire uh you can see the questions on the the first page uh what's been keeping you awake what just happened to you what's on the surface what lies beneath and what is your path and then uh, of course it also says i am uh, my name is and i am dot 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 so um do you want to do you want to pick your name and answer what you are first or do you want to do that one last once you've gotten a sense of the rest of your character my name is hans and i am a chocolatier hans the chocolatier sure tell you what's been keeping me awake what's been grinding my gears what's that it's too damn hot it's too hot that's a great one it's so So, hot it's so hot, I can't sleep. Perfect. So uh, you've, you've already picked a, an, an optimal answer for the question. This is, you know, what's been keeping you awake? This is the source of the character's insomnia, and it sets up what the character's immediate history has been like. What troubles him? What pressures turned him into an insomniac? Is he running from something? Is he staying awake because of nightmares or substance abuse? Has he lost someone dear to him and grief is robbing him of sleep? No, in this case, it is simply because the city is gripped with a heat wave and haunts the chocolatier. It seems to get hotter. Just keeps getting hotter. So this answer connects the character to what all the protagonists in the game have in common, insomnia. It can drive further character development uh, with opportunities for things like flashbacks. If it suggests something that the character is avoiding confronting, the GM can use that as a source of ideas. There's a lot of... Uh, the the way the sourcebook sort of suggests the interplay between the players and the GM, it does seem like there's a lot of... Like, it's not always call and response. Uh, at certain points, the players can ask the GM, like, can I narrate this cool thing like this next part of what's about to happen based on the result of the role we just did. And so there seems to be this like 
this opportunity to do some light trading of the baton and things like, you know, uh, like what it just said, what's keeping the character awake, use that as a source of inspiration that even, uh, that translates sort of more directly to what I'm talking about in the next, uh, question, which is what just happened to you? Um, do you need a primer on what this means? I mean, uh, yeah, I'd like to hear some examples. So this is what happens to the character in the first scene of the game. It's not in the GM's hands. It's in the players. You are picking the very starting point where your game begins. Such a moment should be a moment of high stress for the character. And this might be different from what's been keeping the character awake. So you got to think about what would make an exciting, stressful scene. I know. Is the source of this stress mundane or is it supernatural? Did you lose your job or did a monster jump out of your closet? I did you know. fall off a building? What have you got? Miguel, I was, I was minding my own business. I was reading something or something and then there was a drip and I was like, oh, dang, it's a nosebleed. But it wasn't blood. It was chocolate. Oh, my God. The heat is causing the chocolatier to melt from the inside and he's made of chocolate well i had a chocolate nosebleed i don't know if I, the rest of that seems ridiculous mcgill fascinating <laughs> so why does this matter players get to set the tone for the whole game by determining the opening scene for their protagonists a huge power that should be exercised with discretion and of course in collaboration with the gm because the best opening scenes are the ones that say something about the character's ongoing story uh, so long as the moment of high stress requirement is kept to, you can do just about anything. So that's it. That's a, what I was referring to, where it's like there is the players get some control, uh, not in only what they like the character, their character is doing, but sort of the story itself. Uh, some of the narration comes from the players. Next question is what's on the surface? And this is pretty simple. Uh, it just determines the first impressions the character gives off. Well, what's obvious about your chocolatier? Uh, he's probably he's probably a dapper young man, but probably like you can probably tell that he's queer. All right, he's full of chocolate. I didn't say maybe, that. maybe. Maybe it's just a hallucination. Um, this matters because the answer is just, it gives the GM a guide of how the world interacts with the protagonist, you know? NPCs should look to the answer of what's on the surface uh, to determine how they approach the, the player characters. And then what lies beneath, of course, is the protagonist's secrets, the part of himself that he doesn't show the world. Sometimes... He feels like his body is a churning mass of unknown materials and substances. Whoa. <laughs> I'm going for some body horror here. It's like uh, he's got a creamy chocolate center. Oh, no. <laughs> so uh, this one matters because it can complicate the portrait of the character. It can give them dimensionality, right? It, it plays strongly to character motive and... In the absence of anything else, this informs what kinds of things might come to light. It's another, uh, it's another avenue that the GM can take to sort of 
customize the story so that it involves the personalities of the characters. What's your path? And this is just asking, you know, what are your goals and how do you intend to sort of reach that conclusion? I think more than anything, this guy wants a like rational medical answer to what is going on with him and like a treatment at the end of that that can like stop his body from doing such strange and unpredictable things. Awesome. Okay. Sometimes he wakes so, up and his sheets are wet, but they're wet with milk. Wow. Wet with milk. Oh, my God. Uh, well, I'm certainly interested to see what's going to happen with him. So what's your path, of course, is the ultimate question in a game where the personal journey of the protagonist is just as important as anything else. This whole guy character... is like, it's like a premise for like a cool short film at Fantasia is like a guy is trimming his nails and then one of his nails stretches out like pizza cheese. <laughs> That's like uh, my character in City of Mist. Yeah, yeah, I guess. My cheese golem. Um... So when your character isn't dodging nightmares or navigating the mad city, he is set on achieving the goal outlined by his path. And uh, here's the sample character that they give in the source book here. So um, Rob's protagonist is named Gavin McNabb. He's a protagonist whose child was kidnapped by something under her bed. He's been staying awake due to night terrors about losing his kid, but that was before she was actually taken. At first blush, Gavin McNabb appears to be a deadbeat dad. He doesn't hold down a job really well, and he's divorced. His kid's been living with his mom. The truth of the matter, though, is that he works for the Russian mafia, and he's been trying to keep his family at arm's length in order to keep them out of harm's way. Gavin's story is about becoming the man his family deserves to have. In the immediate, he's interested in recovering his child, but long-term, he wants to be free of his mafia ties and become a better father to his kid. So there we go. Now we get into sort of the nitty-gritty of the stats, now that we've fleshed out the story opportunities. So, uh, discipline. Discipline is kind of, like, the base stat for everything. Uh... The points that you have in any stat uh, are just represented by a d6. So you have three, all protagonists start with a discipline score of three, and that represents three d6s that you get to roll when you're making checks. So your discipline is three. Um, normal people, uh, sleepers as they're called, because you are one of the awake, um, sleepers have a discipline of one or two. So three sets you apart. You're exceptional. You're, you're Neo, right? Like it's, uh, it makes me think of uh, the, the whole sort of layout of this and the way the setting is described and all that just makes me think of that, op that opening scene with Keanu Reeves in The Matrix where he wakes up at his computer and he's like searching for Morpheus and it's the middle of the night. And, you know, uh, he's, he's exceptional. He's got to follow the white rabbit. Uh, that's the sort of atmosphere that I definitely get from these these kinds of aspects. So, discipline of three. Then you have three response boxes there. Three for, f uh, six, sorry. Three for fight and three for flight. You get to start with three 
points. So you distribute them between fight and flight. And the idea here is that uh, responses of fight and flight show how the protagonist responds to moments of extreme stress. Uh, the responses indicate, they, uh, I'll get into how they function in play, but it's sort of like if, you are put, if your character is put under stress, you have to pick a response from what you have. So, you know, you can choose to fight or you can choose flight and run away, but you have to have the option. So if you've already used your flight response, then you might be forced to stay and fight. So I should pick those now? Yeah. One fight, two flight. All right. Uh, going along with the Sourcebooks example, Gavin McNabb is more fearful than angry, uh, but his player knows that Gavin can go to a dark, angry place if this situation calls for it. So Gavin gets two flight, one fight. Next, you determine talents. There is an exhaustion talent and a madness talent. An exhaustion talent allows the character to be exceptional, even supernaturally so, at a particular thing that he can already do. So something like running really fast, climbing impossible surfaces, performing calculations as fast as a computer in his head, or like shooting things with extreme marksmanship. The definition must be reasonably narrow, and uh, on par in terms of breath with other talent picks. You, so the reason it's called an exhaustion talent is that you can like push your character uh, when making a check and use your exhaustion talent by taking points in what is called exhaustion. But the more points you get, the more at risk you are of falling back asleep. And you're vulnerable to nightmares, the, the ultimate villains, when you're asleep. Uh, so my exhaustion talent, can I just have, like, uh, big strength? Yeah, sure. You can get really strong. In the example PC, um, Gavin McNabb, uh, has been tangled up with money troubles in the past, so Gavin's exhaustion talent is gambling. He's exceptionally good at games of chance thanks to his exhaustion talent. And then a madness talent allows the character to do something that is impossible in the realm of human, human reality, basically. You can, you know, use telekinesis, read minds, compel others to tell the truth, teleport a short distance. A madness talent may imply several levels of power at which it operates, or it may, be, it may simply lock in at a certain level. The idea here is that madness... Uh, you, Again, in a bid to sort of push successes in your, your roles and your checks, you can take on points of madness, activate your madness talent, but the closer you get to the brink of insanity, the closer you are to becoming a nightmare. And if you become a nightmare, your character is forfeit to the GM and becomes a villainous NPC in the Mad City. Uh, so I should pick a madness talent? Yeah. Um, I can turn to metal. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, cool. Okay, so you're kind of like Chocolate Colossus is what I'm getting. I'm just, uh, you, you know what I am is I'm like in altered states when he starts slamming himself on the sides of the hall and starts turning all into different goops. You remember that? Yeah, but you're just, you're just that, but for metal? 
Well, no, because also on my inside, I keep turning into fucking goops. My, you the, know, uh, tangential, but I, I is that scene a reference to the music video by AHA, Take On Me? Or is Take On Me a reference to that scene? I don't know. Because in, in the video for Take On Me, the cartoon boyfriend comes into the real world and he slams himself against the walls of the hall. And as he does so, he sort of switches between real and cartoon in the same way as William Hurt does in Altered States. I mean, it sounds like it's a reference to Altered States, but did the video come out first? This is something I could look up, but I haven't yet. Anyway. Saddle me with this. <laughs> this, uh, this the baffling conundrum. The example in the source book for a madness talent is Gavin McNabb can teleport short distances, and with greater distance... Uh, it requires more madness points to be taken on. So more, the further he goes, the more likely he is to lose his mind. So what's so, what's next? So uh, the use of dice is central to resolving conflicts and don't rest your head. Uh, dice are only rolled when a conflict arises. Conflicts may be between the protagonist and the environment, uh, or between the protagonist and another character. To resolve a conflict, the player states what his character is trying to do, and the GM states what opposes that effort. Then both roll dice. When rolling, the player always rolls all of his discipline dice, so three, his current level of exhaustion dice, and whatever number of madness dice he chooses to add to the pool for the roll. When a player or a GM rolls, how the dice fall indicates both the degree and the strength of the roll. The degree is, is sort of like the DC. Every six-sided die that shows a 1, 2, or 3 is a success. The total of all the successes a player or GM rolls is the degree. The side that got the highest degree wins the conflict. The outcome favors the winning side, but maybe not exclusively. If more than one side got the same number of successes, the protagonist wins. Within a particular pool, i.e. a particular color of dice, the pools being discipline, exhaustion, madness, or the GM's pool is pain, the strength is indicated by the highest single showing die. So this is different than the number of successes and the degree. Without looking at the GM's dice, the player's pool with the highest number is the, is the strength. Um, it's the, the strength is said to be dominant. So for example, let's, let's get an example roll here. Um, uh, the player Rob rolls three discipline dice and two exhaustion dice. The GM rolls four dice. Rob's discipline dice show two, two, and five. So two successes and his exhaustion dice show three and six. The GM's pain dice show 1, 3, 5, and 6. So Rob rolled 3 dice below 3. His degree is 3. The GM rolled 2 dice at or below 3. So she has a degree of 2. Rob's degree is higher, so the outcome favors his side. Now, his discipline strength, the highest number in discipline, is 5. And his exhaustion strength, the highest number in exhaustion, is 6. The GM's Strength is six as well. Both exhaustion and pain, the GM's dice, have one six. So 
they break the tie by comparing the next highest number. The GM has a three for exhaustion. Uh, or sorry, uh, Rob has a three for exhaustion. The GM has a five for pain. So since the five is higher, pain is the dominant pool. And it could also be exhaustion. It could be discipline. It could be madness. What this means is that the, the dominant uh, pool dictates the type of outcome. Does, so, does that make sense? So in that example, Rob gets the outcome, favors him, but it is a painful outcome? Correct. Okay. So uh, so here, uh, I'll give an example. I might as well just sort of give examples uh, in the order given here. But for example, discipline. Discipline dice indicate the influence of a character's self-control and skill on the outcome. Um, the number of discipline dice remains fixed in general. A high strength result from discipline indicates that skill rules the day better than uh, exhaustion or madness. When discipline is dominant, regardless of success or failure, the situation remains under control. It doesn't spiral into greater chaos. The use of skill and focus rule the day. This has the game effect of allowing the player to decrease his current exhaustion by one or remove a check mark from one of his responses. Uh, the player is not obligated to make use of this privilege. Sometimes he might want to keep his exhaustion where it is. Um, so exhaustion. Once parole, the player may volunteer voluntarily choose to increase his character's exhaustion by one to add a black die to his pool. A player may never increase his character's exhaustion beyond six, uh, if he hits six, he crashes out, just falls asleep, passes out. Adding exhaustion increases the number of overall dice in his total pool, so improves the chances of winning conflicts. However, this means that exhaustion may dominate the outcome. Once increased, exhaustion does not go back down on its own, so the die stays added to the pool. When, the, when exhaustion is dominant, regardless of success or failure, the situation taxes the protagonist's, re, protagonist's resources and gives him a moment to confront his insomnia the crush, and his crushing need for rest. This has the game effect of increasing the protagonist's exhaustion by one, even if the player has already voluntarily increased it for this role. When a character's exhaustion reaches six, he crashes. He's in imminent danger of falling asleep by the end of the scene, if not earlier. Since falling asleep is the worst thing that can happen to someone who is awake, one of the awakened, other dire circumstances can be substituted for falling asleep. Uh, if you have something else in mind, sort it out with your GM. When a protagonist crashes, all his response boxes clear out, all his exhaustion dice clear away, it's reduced back to zero, he'll remain asleep and for a number, unresponsive for a number of days, at least one. When he wakes back up, his discipline drops to one. He has no access to his talents until he reclaims his insomniac lifestyle by staying awake for as long as he slept, at which point everything comes back. But from the moment he falls asleep to the moment he regains his power, he's a beacon to the nightmares, calling those nearby to his helpless body and, in far too many cases, becoming some manner of food or entertainment soon after. His only chance of surviving is in the hands of his friends and allies. Madness. Um... Similar to exhaustion. Anytime the player rolls dice for his character, he may choose to add madness dice to the roll. 
up to six. By making use of Madness Dice, he's putting the character at risk of serious psychological strain akin to what, might, what one might expect out of perpetually sleep-deprived individuals. In essence, Madness Dice represent how far the protagonist is pushing himself past his normal limits. They don't hang around like exhaustion dice do, so they may be used as the player feels they are needed without needing to be used again. Whenever a character uses Madness Dice, he has the option, but not requirement, to call upon his Madness talent to affect the situation in ways that would normally be impossible. When Madness is the pool that is dominant, regardless of the outcome, the situation places great psychological or emotional strain on the protagonist. Further, uh, circumstances inevitably become more chaotic. The protagonist may find himself falling victim to the risks he's taken. This has the game effect of checking off one of the protagonist's responses, fight or flight. The player may choose which of the available boxes is, is taken, uh, which may allow him to choose whether the response is fight or flight. If the response is flight, the protagonist must react with total fear, uh, run away, screaming, freezing in a moment of paralytic terror, giving away his position, something like that. If the response is fight, the protagonist must react to the results of the action with consuming rage. So not necessarily fighting the opponent, but lashing out unthinkingly at a friend, uh, throwing himself at an opponent no matter the odds, or smashing use useful resources into bits and pieces. If no response boxes are available to be checked, then the character has hit a breakpoint, a moment of ultimate strain, and he snaps. And uh, so... Again, like the function of madness and exhaustion, the way they play out has a, a similar sort of trajectory, even if they have different functions. Uh, so snapping is a bit like crashing. A character snaps because he had no responses to check off and was required to check off another. This is a moment of extreme stress. He's in imminent danger of going insane by the end of the scene, if not sooner than that. A character who snaps must spend at least one scene acting his psychotic break. From a player's perspective, this can just be a fun time. Pick a crazy way to snap and go with it. Sometimes snapping is temporary, sometimes it's permanent, but either way, it erodes the character's discipline. Uh, when a character snaps, his response boxes all reset. His discipline score drops by one, he gains a single permanent madness die. This permanent madness die is rolled in addition to any the player might temporarily add to his pool. Permanent Madness, again, you know, it means that you have a greater chance for success, but it also has greater chance of you going even crazier when Madness winds up being the dominant pool. When a protagonist's discipline drops to zero, his madness transcends his mind, takes root in his flesh, and he's transformed into a nightmare. This effectively kills the character and replaces him with a monster. Um, Makes and sense to me. So all of that is stuff on the player's side. Let me just check our time. I'm going to cover the GM side of the dice rolling, and then uh, maybe I'll wrap this up uh, as well as talk about some Palladium on our next episode when I go into the, the setting a bit more, because I do want to profile the setting for Don't Rest Your Head a bit more. So GMs only get one color of dice, the color of pain. The GM's dice represent the level of stress that her side of the conflict represents. Trying to talk your way out of a traffic ticket might be a minor amount of stress. Trying to get past a dragon that guards a secret basement of the city morgue is very stressful. Obstacles and opponents are given a particular pain rating, indicating how stressful it is to get into conflict with them. 
If a protagonist is facing several opponents, the pain rating that you take is that of the highest one, and add another die of pain for each additional opponent. Add two if they share the same high pain rating as the leader. When determining the level of pain, keep in mind that the best a character can do safely is get three successes. So any pain rating above three is significant, and any rating above six demands, due to the average number of successes, that the character move into very risky territory, perhaps using exhaustion or madness. When the GM rolls pain dice in a conflict, she is bringing potential consequences to bear on the protagonist. At their simplest, pain dice may just provide a number of successes indicating that the opposition, not the protagonist, has won the conflict. But when pain is dominant, regardless of the outcome, the situation exacts a price on the protagonist. In the case of a, a loss, the loss might be uh, price enough, but in case of victory, the victory might be something, or the victory might take something out of the victor. Pain, when pain is dominant, pain dominates. It has to have a consequence. This is a game effect of requiring a player to place a coin of despair into the coffers. And this is where uh, we get into the coins a bit. Remember those coins? Yeah. So, um, let's see here, the coins. Over the course of play, one or more coins may be paid into the despair bowl as a result of any roll when pain dominates. Anytime the GM, uh, at any time, the GM can decide to spend a coin of despair, and in doing so, that coin is moved into the hope bowl, but only once the conflict is resolved, because you'll see that hope coins can be used by players, so it's important to note that the pain, the despair coin that is spent doesn't become available to the players until after the current conflict is resolved, and it goes into the hope bowl. Despair coins, which are gained when pain is dominant, are the GM's currency to spend. Whenever the GM spends a coin of despair, uh, she is said to be casting a shadow over the outcome. Coins spent in this way are, uh, are placed into the hope coffer at the end of the conflict after everything is resolved, and on any roll, the GM may spend a coin of despair to add a six to any of the pools in play. So potentially changing the pool that ends up dominating. That's what you use the despair coin for. In order to be targeted, the pool must have at least one die in it already. This means that unless the player rolled madness dice, the GM can't add a six to the madness pool. Similarly, without exhaustion dice in play, the GM can't toss a 6 into the exhaustion pool. If any of these changes from casting a shadow cause pain to dominate, its, its usual effect of paying a coin into the coffer is suspended, so the GM can't generate their own despair coins. There's no zero-sum game here. And then hope coins, which are gained when the GM spends despair, are the player's currency to spend. Hope represents the character's too seldom chance to get a breather and reel themselves back from whatever the precipice of the moment happens to be. When a player spends a hope coin, it's called shedding light. Whenever hope is used, the coins just leave, pay entire, leave play entirely. A player can spend a coin from the hope coffer to reduce his current exhaustion by one, remove a check mark from a fight-or-flight response. He may do this whenever he is not actively embroiled in a conflict. It might be a short moment where he gains a second wind or lengthy downtime. The GM has the right to say whether or not it's appropriate for the character to get a break, but should show some mercy uh, once in a while. 
A character who has lost disciplined permanent madness may render that madness a little less permanent by spending hope. Permanent madness dice may be removed and replaced by discipline. This can usually only be done if the characters manage to achieve at least several hours of calm reflection. Each time this is done, the cost in hope coin is equal to 5 minus the character's current discipline level. Uh, and let's see here, there's one more use for hope, which is improving a success. On a roll, any player may spend one or more coins of hope before the results are narrated. Doing so adds a one to the main protagonist's discipline pool, so you get an additional success. Makes sense so far? Oh man, it's it's a bit tough to visualize uh, once we stack everything on it. I mean, I was following well, Tom, for a while there, but well, Tom, the source book anticipates that and provides this handy bullet point sheet of the rules summary. So that just has like all of the if this then that. Uh, once per roll, increase your exhaustion by one. You may. Anytime you roll, you may add one to six dice of temporary madness. To determine the degree of success, count the dice that show one, two, or three. To determine the strength of a pool, find the die of that color showing the highest number. So, like, this is just the, the TLDR of everything I just said. Like, the, the one or two sentence explanation of all of those rules. And uh, I'll leave it there because we're... we're we're about to hit two hours uh but uh what do you think of this so far tom as i said you know it's a very the the setting i don't think are unique but uh i don't think the setting's unique but i think the the way it's played is interesting some interesting mechanical interactions here i'm still kind of trying like i'm still sort of trying to wrap my head around the mechanic of the successful degree versus the dominating strength like i i understand it but i am just trying to like i don't know how i feel about it basically okay yeah it's sort of it's interesting because it means that every sort of conflict where dice are rolled on both sides the gm and the player um there's the resolution to the conflict, which is just determined by successes and the degree of each dice pool. But then there is this added hitch where separate from those successes, one of the pools determines how the resolution plays out. Like it adds, I guess just it, it's not just narrative flavor. It like steers the narrative, but there is also like a consequence as a result of it. Sometimes the consequence is just everything goes well if discipline is dominant, or sometimes the consequence is like you start going a little crazy. Yeah, like again, it's I, it's I, I like... it's like two it's two separate game functions but combined just into the act of rolling, which is part of what I think is interesting about it. And I I also just think the idea of having like you know the despair and hope bowls that you pay into and can use it's just an interesting kind of almost an interesting visual of playing around a table. It gives, uh, you know, treats the GM almost like an arbiter of fate with the, the light and the dark before them. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just don't know how it would play out. I would have to try it out myself, I guess. Well, that's fair enough. 
Um, I'll see if I can find any good videos of people playing it before we record our next episode. Um, but I just, I don't know, there's something intriguing about the way everything interacts with these rules that I find interesting. It's got a, I don't know if I've ever seen this particular arrangement, you know, these different mechanics are evocative of other RPGs, but I've never really seen them put together in this particular way. And I think that the flavor created by the way those rules play out works with the atmosphere of the stories that it's trying to tell. These like, you know, middle of the night kind of supernatural tales. Well, is that it for another episode of Comparing Campaign? Sure is. This has been episode 153 recorded on the 7th of June, 2023. If you want to get in touch with us, see when we post new episodes or follow us, check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. Or if you want to see our show notes and supplemental materials, check us out on ComparingCampaign.wordpress.com. Uh, who's ever played a game of this? Don't rest your head. Not me. Who has trouble resting their head? Not me. Ha. <laughs> yeah, not me either. I am definitely not an insomniac. Level up, get your discipline, and uh, rest up. Take care, everybody.